You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Laura Furman has been the series editor for the O. Henry Prize Stories Anthology since 2003. The 2007 O. Henry Prize Stories Anthology was released earlier this year. Thank you for speaking with me, Laura. Thank you. Laura, I'd like to go back, ratchet back to the beginning, and talk about just who was O. Henry. I I know, and I think most of us know, about The Gift of the Magi and, and his other famous surprise ending stories. But he was more than those stories. Could you talk a little bit about his life and who he was? Sure. Oh, Henry's name was William Sidney Porter, and he lived from 1862 to 1910, which, just to put that in perspective, Chekhov's dates are 1860 to 1904. So these very, very different short story writers were writing at the same time. Oh, Henry had an extremely difficult childhood, his mother died very young. His father was alcoholic and also extremely eccentric. He and his brother were given over to two kind of wacky aunts. And eventually he came to Texas. I'm in Austin, Texas. That's what I'm saying, came to Texas. And he was befriended by a series of rich families who put him up at at ranches in South Texas, which were, you know, not luxurious, but it was a ch- it was his first chance to not work full time to educate himself. He was a great reader, and he read everything he could get his hands on, and eventually migrated to Austin, where he married a very young woman when he was young himself. They had one child who died, and then another. T- who lived, a daughter who lived. His wife was tubercular, and this is all sounding very sad, but I think they had a pretty good time in Austin. He put out a newspaper called The Rolling Stone. Really? uh, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And uh, he sang with the Gilburn Sullivan Society. And the worst thing that happened to him was that he found a good job at a bank. And banking laws were quite loose in those days, and eventually he was arrested for embezzlement. Although, from what I've read, I, I think he got caught in the middle of a you know, wink and a handshake deal between rich friends, and he kind of took the fall. And anyway, he went to federal penitentiary in Ohio, where he really began to write his story seriously, and that's where he took up the name O'Henry. And when he was released, he moved to New York, which was really the place of his heart. And I I think you can see that from reading his stories. He was so interested in in the complexities of people's lives. And um, there's no better place for looking at that than New York. And he, he published a lot. He was in debt a lot. His daughter was supported by his in-laws, and and he rarely saw her. He became quite an alcoholic himself and eventually died um, from from drink. He was much loved and and an interesting man, and when you read about him, a surprisingly 
contemporary figure. I mean, the way the way he conducted his literary life is pretty familiar to anyone who knows writers. Um, he just did what he could and kept on going. And I think at the end of his life, he wished he had done more work, done more serious work. But um, he did he did a great deal. And and as I say in the in the publisher's note, there are very few American writers who's a book, you know, it's a story title you can mention, and people will say, yes, I know what that story is, and I know what that story means. So he's made a real imprint on um, American letters. It, I thought it was really fascinating that his friends thought so highly of him. They formed what they called, and I love this name, the Twilight Club. Yes. <laughs> well, that seems an appropriate time for him. Yes. <laughs> And and then some uh, eight years after his death, decided to honor him with an annual prize. Yes, and you know that was done. And there was a, a big dinner at a hotel, and and several friends became so carried away by the enthusiasm that they got together you know, during the daytime and decided that that they could do this, and got together with the publishing company that became Doubleday, which has consistently been the publisher of the O. Henry Prize stories. And the statement they put out announcing this this collection and saying what it was for said that they were doing this to strengthen the art of the short story and to stimulate younger authors. Their feeling was that O. Henry had been very important for the short story and that they wanted to keep supporting the, the form in which he wrote but also to honor and strengthen and bring in new new writers. And the collection has always done that. If you look back on old O'Henry's, there are names then very young who became great writers and a variety of people who were recognized already as being great writers. So one of the things that's characteristic of an O'Henry collection is a variety of kinds of stories and also a variety of ages of writers. As it started out, it was a juried prize till 1951, which meant that the members of the Society of Arts and Letters, which is what the Twilight Club became, selected the the, the entries. And then from 54 to 97, the, the uh, series editor, one person, mm-hmm chose the stories and top winners that seems that's a lot of responsibility and and you must feel that as well being the latest series editor you know i do feel that as a real responsibility but in a way it keeps me honest which is also the way i designed the the jurors which we'll get to in a minute but in a way when you work in a committee you can always take refuge in in the compromise that that a committee represents and the kind of horse trading that goes on with in every committee. And if you're doing it alone, you just have to stay honest and, and just stay with your gut. It doesn't matter who wrote the story. What matters is the story. And that's, that's what I try to go with. I just try to stay as instinctual as possible. That's really fascinating. And I'm really interested in this uh, your method of choosing the jurors. This is something you started uh, with... Uh, the publisher anchor Doubleday, you invite three jurors. You and how does that? There must be some horse trading that goes on between you and the publisher. Oh yes, there is. Well, I actually I didn't invent the 
the jury system. I think that that was Larry Dark who preceded me. Okay. And so I inherited it, and they used to, the jury, the jurors used to horse trade. And I did, again, I just didn't like that idea. It seemed to me that, that what was going to, they, they would pick a first prize, second prize, and third prize. And then all the other, all the, you know, the other 17 stories were, were in the collection, but didn't win the first, second, or third prize. And these are names. I mean, there isn't a, a block of acrylic that you're given when you're a, an O'Henry Prize winner. So the whole thing seemed a little, I don't know, fantastic to me. And I, with Anchor, uh, decided that everyone was a prize winner, that we would not make gradations among the 20 stories, and that being in the collection is the O'Henry Prize. But we also liked the idea of having three other readers. I mean, given the fact that I'm reading and choosing the 20 stories, we wanted to enrich the collection by having other voices, and, and we wanted the voices of other writers. So, yeah, we do a lot of talking about what would be the, the dream jurors, the dream group of jurors. And what we try to do is balance very established writers, up-and-coming writers, writers who are known in different genres. And, and the, the 2007 jurors are, are kind of a beautiful example of that. I um, totally agree. Tell us about who, who you guys managed to select. Yeah. Ursula K. Le Guin is a very well-known writer, very well-known for fantasy and not really science fiction, but fantasy. She, I published a short short of hers in a, in a literary magazine I, I edited a long time ago called American Short Fiction. And it's one of the best short shorts I've ever read. And so I remembered her and remembered her integrity as a writer and just thought, you know, let's, let's bring her in because these are literary stories. We, you know, we usually don't have strictly fantasy stories or science fiction stories, although some of the stories cross over. And she was willing to do it. I was thrilled. And then Lily Tuck, who won a National Book Award for a novel, is well-known as a, as a short story writer. She has an extremely quirky voice and writes with a kind of really witty minimalism. And I thought she'd be great, and I, I, she's a friend, and I just know that her Taste is terrific. And then Charles D'Ambrosio, of course, is one of the best young writers writing now. And when I say young, I don't mean 18, but, but he's, I think, on his third or fourth book, is terrific and has an, a very different sensibility. And that's really the mix that I wanted was the mix of sensibilities. The way that the jury decides is is really fascinating, and it reminds me of a, there's a magazine out uh, and it comes out I think once or twice a year called Mnemonymous, and the way this magazine publishes your work, you submit it and your work is is published with no attribution. 
So when you wow. get, it's called the money. Yeah, it's great. It's the editor is a guy named D.F. Lewis, and he's a really fascinating literary anarchist. He's all over the map, and he's a really interesting <laughs> guy. Um, and so uh, issue one had a, a selection of stories with titles, and issue two told you who had written the stories in issue oh, that's one. that's great. That is great, because what, what happens with us that, that's, I'm sure, has similar results, is that I put together a, just a, a word manuscript of the stories, but without letting the jurors know who wrote the stories or where the stories were published, because, you know, I don't, I don't care what anyone says. If you see a Xerox of a New Yorker story, you're going to have a reaction, whether it's, oh, I love the New Yorker, or, oh, I hate the New Yorker. And that's really not fair to the writer. I decided to do that, and I also decided that the jurors wouldn't talk to each other. Basically, they, they don't even know who, who the other jurors are. If they ask, I'll tell them, but usually they don't, they don't even ask. So that what they're choosing is not the best story, but their favorite story, and their favorite story reading it blind. I really and, like that and this idea. Is amazing. <laughs> yeah, and the results are, are are also amazing, especially this year. I'd like to talk a little bit about the submitting requirements. Mm-hmm. Um, you you will accept magazines uh, from either the U.S. or Canada, and I'm wondering why the U.K. was never included. Oh, the U.K. It's the the original rules of the O. Henry the, the prize stories were established for American publications, and the the publication has to have a North American presence. Okay. So, for instance, Granta has a North American presence, and and so we look at their work and and choose them, <laughs> choose stories from Granta quite a bit. Now, do the magazines have to submit just? Can they just submit individual issues to you, or do they have to submit the whole year's worth? Well, I, usually they just put me on the comp list, so I get the issues one by one. And then toward the spring, because the year goes from May 1st to May 1st, a reading year does, if I'm missing any issues, I try to get in touch with people to send me the rest of the issues. Some editors, I guess thinking of the Pushcart Prize, nominate stories and send me um, excerpts, but really, I just want to read the issue, and, and again, that's in the spirit of, let me just be as blank as possible when I'm approaching each story. And, and it gives you a sense, a different sense, too, to see the mag, the story as published and where it's placed in the magazine. It, it I think it really gives you more of an organic experience of reading the story. Well, of reading the story and of seeing what's going on in American and, and Canadian magazines, <clears throat> and and of course the, um, the the few UK representatives we have, just just to clarify about whose stories are um, eligible, the stories have to be originally written in English, so that some wonderful translated work just we just can't consider it, and it's it's also it's only. Print magazines. We're not. We're not reading all the new magazines on the web. Yeah, that's interesting. As you do have a, a a rather extensive website that you have some exciting plans for. Yes, yes, we're going to be. I I've always included a very short list of recommended stories, and these are stories that um, just about made it, and didn't for one reason or another, 
and we're going to be talking about those much more on the website and putting in, uh, we hope, excerpts of the stories so that, because the, the reason, for my reason for including recommended stories at all is to try to encourage people to find these magazines and, and read these writers. I, mean, I think there's really something exciting about reading a story in Boulevard magazine and then a year later seeing a whole collection from that, that writer whose you know, that writer's work touched you in some way, and then you say, aha, there's more. I can go for more. So we're going to be encouraging that on, on the website. Uh, and it, you also, in the back of the anthology, list all the people who submitted work to you. Yes, and I think that's very important, and we, we really try our hardest. And when I say we, I mean I usually have a graduate student or two from the University of Texas writing programs, either our master's program in the English department or the MFA in the Michener Center for Writers. And they're especially helpful in putting together a database of magazines submitting. And we try to make the information as, as, as accurate as possible because I know that writers will use that list to submit work directly to the magazine. That's what I was thinking. It's an, it's a, if you're a writer and you want to look for some, uh, something that's less uh, mind-numbing than the writer's guide, right. some, <laughs> you look at that and you can't make it heads or tails. This is Your, your uh, anthology is a fantastic resource in that man, realm. Oh, well, thank you. I mean, that's, that's kind of one of the overlooked parts of this, this book, and I, it's, I think it's really an important part. Uh, I absolutely agree. I looked at it and thought, wow, anybody who wanted to submit a story to uh, an anthology, here's a, to, to a magazine, here's a great way to find out the, the top magazines in, in the nation, mm-hmm. in North America. Well, and it's, it's really part of, I mean, the way I look at, at the prize stories is, is that this book is, in a way, a conversation about literature because the stories are in there, of course and they're the most important thing. There's my introduction, which discusses the stories. There are the jurors' essays, which discuss their favorites. And then the writer's statements, which I find fascinating, because the the reaction of most writers is, what? Uh, What? I'm not going to talk about my work. I I can't talk about my work. And in fact, William Trevor, who's one of my favorite writers, just doesn't talk. I noticed that. I was looking for, because I really enjoyed his story, I was curious to see what he had to say about it, and I saw William Trevor is, right. dot, 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 dot. <laughs> and he certainly is. I mean, he's, he's quite wonderful, but he just doesn't do that, and that's fine. Well, um, the, the length, the breadth of what you include in the, the anthology really does make it a, 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 a fantastic distillation of our literary culture for the short story, mm-hmm. with the writer's statements, the editor's statements, the introductions, the discussions, you know, the um, list of magazines. This is, it's like a one-stop place where you can immerse yourself in the finest short story writing going on. Absolutely. I mean, that, that's our goal, and I'm, I, I'm very glad <laughs> you would think we've met it. Absolutely, and, and I also really liked, uh, especially this year's uh, dedication. Mm-hmm. Th- now, this is new, isn't it? The, the dedications are there. Um, at, at one point, Larry Dark, I know that he dedicated one one book to Alice Munro. I've made the dedication kind of a bigger deal in that I 
what I wanted to do was not only say, you know, thank you for being wonderful, but to, to kind of help the readers see, be tempted to read the writers. And so I, I work with one short story per dedication and try to give the, the readers a sense of the writer through that short story. Uh, this year, it's uh, Sherwood Anderson mm-hmm. uh, from Winesburg, Ohio. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, what, what what interested me about this is uh, I work with a I discuss a lot of genre fiction, and at the same time, when uh, Sherwood Anderson was writing Winesburg, Ohio, a, a very famous and though not very skilled writer named A.E. Van Vocht was pursuing the same thing. He created one of the uh, iconic uh, novels of science fiction in the 30s, uh, of the, the pulpiest of the pulps called The Weapon Shops of Isher. But it was the, the same, uh, done in the same manner that, that Sherwood did of um, writing a series of connected short stories deliberately and, and then kind of it, but doing what later became called the fix-up novel. <laughs> where he, you know, would just publish them as, as one big block. And so right. I, I thought, that I really liked this uh, Sherwood Anderson, and I was glad that you brought him up. Well, you know, when you say Sherwood Anderson, a lot of people simply groan. And I'm not sure how that happened. It might be because they were forced to read Winesburg at a young age or something. Although, you know, why, I don't know, because it's, it was scandalous in its time and is is very much about the intimate lives of this of this town, the people in the town. But he was really a radical short story writer and pals with Gertrude, or literary pals with Gertrude Stein, an inspiration to Hemingway, who, of course, spoke badly of him in the end. He was a courageous writer and and had a really interesting life. I thought so as well. You know, one thing when I look at this anthology, I, I started to think of the work that you as an editor must do. And, and it just seems phenomenal to the point of almost overwhelming. Uh, you, you have help then, I, I take it. You were talking about your grad students logging the arrivals, knowing what's coming in. Well, they they create the database. and So you are using a database. I was curious if you were... <laughs> Well, we the first year I used a database to log what came in mm-hmm. and to to write up. I had I had a lot of students that year to also log in who had read what when, and it became much too complicated. So now I work with one, sometimes two students. We just keep very simple yellow pad sheets of who's read what. And the way in which I'm helped by the students is in two ways, and one is assembling that very important list of periodicals and the other is in reading what they're going to read and showing me anything that they think I might like. So at least at the beginning, anything that keeps them awake and that, that's at all possible, they show to me. So it's a way of, of my keeping in touch with all the magazines and also with all the stories being read. And then I show them, I do a lot of reading, obviously, <laughs> and I show them stories that, that I like. And it, this is a great luxury for me because it means that I can read something and say, oh, I want to hear what someone else says about it, rather than wrestling at that moment with, but you know, is it a story for the collection? I can just say, there's something in this 
I want to read it again and again and again and get someone else's opinion. So having other readers there is terrific. And in fact, it's kind of become this little O'Henry family because I have students who worked with me in previous years, and I, I send them stuff when I'm really kind of stumped. Um, there's one young writer in, in San Francisco, Katie Williams, who's still helping me. She worked with me for two years, and now she's out there teaching and writing. Do you keep a, how do you keep a ratings index of these stories? That must seem very difficult. Do, do you... Um, do you like log, rate, try to slot them in as you go, or do you just wait, look at the amorphous mass on, on two days before the deadlines do? No, no, no. <laughs> oh no, I'm too compulsive for that. No, we we divide as as we read, and especially as I read. There's three categories: no, maybe, and yes. And there are almost no yeses until, in that way, you're right until almost the end. But there are a lot of maybes, and we have meetings and you know pull our hair about the about the maybes. And the good thing about reading as the year goes is it gives you time to live with the story. Right. So some stories mm-hmm. that that might be appealing for personal reasons. You know, it just touches your heart because you also worked in a five and dime in Illinois at some point in your life. You can kind of get over that and, and really see what the writing is like with the with the help of time. So there's a lot of no's, obviously, uh, very few yeses right away, and a bunch of maybes. And then we usually end up with a <clears throat> with a list of about um, thirty or so stories, and then then I do get tough. Then one of the questions I ask myself is. If this were my magazine, my little magazine or my big magazine, would I publish this story? And that is one of the things that kind of brings me up short about stories that I just am kind of sentimental about or admire one thing in. Because I believe that the O. Henry Prize stories hang around people's bookshelves and lives for a long time. And I want these stories to be read and reread and and to be able to stand up to to living with the reader for a long time. Uh, I'm wondering, uh, do you experience short story burnout and, and have to just go back and read a, a, a novel now and again? Or do you not have time? Well, while I'm, while I'm reading for the O. Henry intensively, like right now I'm preparing the manuscript of the 08 to go to the publisher, <clears throat> and then I'll start more serious reading for the 09. It's very hard for me to read serious novels. I'm in, I'm in the middle of The Indian Clerk by David Levitt, which is about to be published. But I suspect this is the last literary novel I'm going to read for a very long time. Usually my bedtime reading, my pleasure reading, is either mysteries, which don't pretend to be literary or just mysteries, and also nonfiction, I mean, I love Janet Malcolm. I read biography. I teach biography and personal essay. I don't teach fiction anymore for for writing. I teach reading short stories, but not writing them. What mystery uh, writers do you read? I'm curious. Okay, my mind just went blank. Um, 
Let me see. Joanne Dobson. I'm not all that discriminating. Mm-hmm. I like um, cozies, you know, kind of English cozies. Oh, yes. I like, I don't like violence. Um, I don't like really creepy, ugly, you know, skin flaying stuff. <laughs> um, and I don't, I don't really like to be challenged a lot. I, in a way, I don't really, really care who did it. I P. like P.D. James. P.D. James you know, is wonderful. Who, who doesn't? And Elizabeth George, although the last one kind of, I couldn't read it. I guess I just like books that will let me shut down a certain part of my brain and just go on vacation. One one thing you talk about, and this kind of stems right from that, is that is your qualification for a story. And you say this really interestingly. You want it's the only asset a story has for you, in a sense, is how it moves the reader from the reader's world into the world of the story. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really interesting notion, and it starts to get at the heart of of what I like to call the reading experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was talking with uh, Alan Shoes, mm-hmm. he talked about reading a- as almost like a performance that the reader does um, from from a, a script of music in, in a similar way. Because one of the things that's easy to forget about when you were presented with all these beautifully written and polished works is that the reader actually does a, a fair amount of the heavy lifting in sure. in reading. Mm-hmm. In in making the effort to read. In making the effort to read, it's that's where it, where it all happens. And so I'm curious about how you feel about this, the reading experience, and your own ability to read. How that feeds into your choices in the O. Henry uh, anthology. Well, I'm I'm also in, really interested in the reading experience. I I once edited an anthology of writing about reading um, called Bookworms with, uh, with Eleanor Standard and an old friend. And this was really interesting because we found all kinds of sources of people basically saying, this is what happened to me because I read, this is what happened to me during reading. And I became, of course, you know, aware, aware of my own, I mean, more aware and more, more articulated articulate about my own love of reading and how important reading has been to me in my life. I think that what the what this kind of responsible reading I've done for the, for the O. Henry, it's made me really aware of my instincts as a reader and what and so that when I'm being moved by a story, another part of me then says, "Aha, okay." Now your attention has been taken. Now you're feeling and you're attentive. You're not just being entertained. There's something extra happening. It's like an awa- and a waking up in the middle of reading. And those stories are the ones that will get my, my serious attention. I'm, I also write short stories and novels and, and a memoir. And what I've noticed is that, that in reading and rereading and rereading and rereading my own work in order to, to rewrite it, that, that what I have to be very sensitive to is kind of these invisible spaces, the spaces between paragraphs, 
the spaces between sentences because it's all a question. It is, you know, to continue Alan's um, musical idea, that it's all an orchestration of of attention and feeling of of the creation of images within the reader's mind, and also a kind of entertainment of the reader's brain at the same time, um, so that you know you can vary a joke with a description, and I think that. Being a trained reader who can recognize tonality within a piece of work um, is is one of the greatest things that can happen to a person because this gives you the power to to live in literature and to live in in worlds that are not your own. That's that that is absolutely the case. That, that's a fascinating insight. I've never thought about it that way. Uh, one of the things I like about this. Uh, book is are the author's insights into the stories at mm-hmm. the end, and I thought was interesting was that so many authors keyed their stories off of stuff something that had happened, right? Something that had happened to them or or to someone else. There are so many different examples of this, but I I do think of Bay Annapol's story, a stone house, when um, that that she was she's writing a story that's a very beautiful story about a mother and a daughter, and a, a daughter who um, who doesn't really understand that she loves her mother. Um, and and this partly came out of, of Bay's mother's death and, and Bay realizing things about her mother after her death. I mean, a, another thing I love hearing about from the, from the writers is literally how they came to write the stories, like Eddie... Chocolate, which is the way I pronounce his name, wrote a, a historically based story that I assumed he'd gotten this from from reading a lot of history. You know, when you read a lot of history, you can something will happen and you'll feel like, okay, I get it, I can be there. You know, this character is the one who's interesting to me. Here I go. But actually, he he kind of got this from the horse's mouth from a a friend who's a Southern Cheyenne who. He says, told me the skeleton of this story, how one of her grandfathers and other men in the tribe had made this trip from Oklahoma to the Gulf of Mexico. And so it, what, this didn't take place in 1826, obviously, which, is, which his story did, but he was able to go from, from that journey to this wonderful imaginary journey um, that, that he describes in Galveston Bay, 1826. One other thing that I, that I really liked, the other uh, theme that I seemed to see when the, in the writer's comments was the characters who come to life and just won't go away. Mm-hmm. Yes, especially Ariel Dorfman, who's been, who is plagued by those, those characters. And he talks about, about the characters, Karina and Orlando, and that they're now making themselves into a novel. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that there's a relationship between character and and author that really comes out in in uh, in, in good stories that you feel a real commitment of the of the writer to the to the story and to the character. I think sometimes the 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 problem as a writer is to uh, to do justice to both. 
to really not only create and tell the tell the story of a character, but to to make the story a work of art, which might mean leaving out quite a bit about the character and put it pulling in other things. Joan Silber, who's this is the second O. Henry I've, I've given her in in the 2007. She's a very interesting writer to me because she always writes in first person monologue. And although there are variations in in tone, there's something that's kind of the same about them all, except that each of the people is so individual that it, it's as if there's this beautiful form that she's discovered that these these people fit into, and they're extraordinarily vivid people. I don't, I don't know if you know her work. It, it's in, in a way, it's like she's. Uh, connected to uh, uh, the platonic ideal of, yes. of some kind of communication channel, and she can just once she's in that eye voice, she can just aim it at, at anybody, and, and and experience them perfectly on at, in prose. You know, I I'm not sure I believe in life after death, but it seems to me that that her stories are like testimonials from the dead, who are finally able to tell the truth about their lives. Uh, apparitions or ghosts, yes. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, I love them. One of the things that's really fun about these collections is to open it up and look at the table of contents. And one thing I really like when I see an anthology is lots of names we don't know. Right, right. And this time, for example, this one includes a, a writer who has first time, first published story, wins a prize. That's got to be pretty exciting. Yes. We hear actually a lot about uh, how the short story is somewhat of an endangered form. How do we train readers to enjoy this sort of fiction? How, how do we get these these stories out there in front of readers so that they realize that this is a, a worth their valuable time? I mean, how how can we? Yeah. Well, I mean, I th- I think by continuing to do everything that a general we we're doing, one is that to all these magazines. I mean, I read about 200 of them, about 200 submit to the O'Henry, and I know that there's more out there, and we can always read more, and I hope, I hope everyone will submit. So the liter- what the literary magazines do is create a culture um, in, in which, you know, in my father's house there are many mansions. And so a young writer who gets rejected by the New Yorker doesn't have to say, well, I guess that's the end of that, but can can find a home or many other homes the more the more publishing that's done of the short story. Um, I think also um, we so subs- obviously subscribing to if everyone who reads the short story and loves the short story would subscribe to one magazine a year, it would change the face of little magazine publishing. Most of them have subscription list of about 800 to 1,000. And I don't know what their pass-along is, but that's, that's paid subscriptions. So if it's, they're being supported either by benevolent individuals or benevolent institutions such as universities, and I think it's important to, to thank the people who are supporting the magazines and let them know that, that their gift is appreciated. And the other thing is, I guess, school in a way. I, by accident, because a colleague of mine 
became ill and couldn't teach one term, I was assigned a course that's a, a contemporary short story reading course. And I had never before taught a strictly literature course. And um, I found that I loved it and formed a short story boot camp. And so, you know, every class, like this year, we have three classes a week, and we read, so that means we're reading three short stories a week. And I, I think that if the short story is taught well enough, that people will want to turn to it because it's a kind of natural form for, for those of us who are really, really busy. And it's nice way. It's a nice to have that complete reading experience in one sitting. Exactly. I mean, okay. Confession time. I'm a I'm a trained reader, and I'm a good reader. And sometimes I I will start a novel and not be able to get back to it for a couple of days, and then I have to start it again because I can't remember. Why am I in China? <laughs> where, where did we go? I thought this was about Brooklyn. Yes. So, but that doesn't happen with short stories. There are very few short stories you put down in the middle. I mean, some are, some are long, um, but but most of them you do kind of take in in a very organic way, which is something that that Tony Dore, who's a wonderful writer, young writer said about writing short stories, he said he, he, he writes novels also, and he said he likes writing short stories because in a long day's work, you can get from beginning to end and you know, do that over and over again, so you can get a sense of the whole thing. And I think it's pretty much the same for the reader, that you really get to understand the whole, the whole thing and then return to it when you will. It, it also makes much easier the process of rereading because, because right. I think... And and I think that's really an important part of reading is going back and rereading, because you have a different experience and a richer experience, and in some ways a more enjoyable experience I think than reading a, a story the first time. Yeah, there's something about the first reading of anything that's that's a nerve wracking experience in a way. It's like going to a party or meeting someone for the first time. There's an excitement. There's a, a kind of plot excitement. Um, where you don't know what's going on, but it's fun. But the second and third time you read a story, you there's not that kind of shiny excitement. What there is, it's, it's more like living with the thing and getting to understand exactly what it is. And for some readers, they enjoy trying to understand how something happened. You know, why did this red ball become so important at the end of the story? We'll go back and look at it. And you'll see that you were alerted to this. There were clues throughout the story that came to you, un- and you were unconscious about it. But now, now you can get it. And a lot of readers really enjoy that. That's really fun. And the thing I like too is once you've created the world of the story in your mind, even if it, there's a lot of time lapses between the times you you read it. When you go back to reread a story, you can immerse yourself in that world much more fully and much more quickly. Right, right. And sometimes it's a place you just want to go back to. That is that is actually my definition of, uh, of great writing on any level, mm-hmm. is in that it creates a different place from the place you're at, and it's a place you want to go back to. Right, however painful. <laughs> <laughs> however painful. 
We've been speaking with Laura Furman. She's the series editor for the O. Henry Prize Stories Anthology. She's been doing this since 2003. The 2007 anthology came out in May of this year, and she's just wrapping up work for 2008. We'll look forward to seeing what you've chosen. Thank you very much, Laura. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.